Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Lay It Down podcast, where we just take everything and lay it down at his feet. I'm your host, Susanna, and I am so excited to be joining you on this Friday for another episode. I have been itching to film this episode. Honestly, it's a Monday when I'm filming this, so I really, really pray that your week has gone well. I pray for my week. I pray that I can get through this video since this is the second time I'm recording this. Satan really does not want this message to get out, okay? My camera overheated and then it shut off when I was almost done and then that was it. So I really think this message is a one of great importance and one that Satan does not want to get out. So we're going to get into this, but I just hope that your week has gone well. I pray that nothing bad has happened to you this week, but if something bad did happen to you and you are questioning why, why did this thing happen to me or why did this bad thing happen to someone I love, we're going to get into that and we're going to answer that question today. This topic is a little bit heavy, but it's going to be so, so good and I hope that if you are able to listen and watch that you are just so encouraged and you leave here with a little bit more clarity as to what this means, as to why bad things happen to good people. This is one of the most asked questions on my Instagram and TikTok pages that I get quite a lot and I say questions in like quotation marks because I get them mostly from what I like to call the Jesus haters who like to say, oh yeah, well if God is so good, like why does bad things happen to this person or why do bad things happen in the world? Why is there suffering? Or if you believe in your sky daddy, why did he allow this thing to happen to you if you are so good and faithful? I'd be lying if I said I never asked myself the same question both in my life before Christ and in my walk with Christ now. And when bad things happen, not only does the question of why do bad things happen to good people come up, but it also brings up other questions such as, why does God allow these things to happen? Can God be trusted? Is God actually good and just? And we are going to get into this today. Every Sunday when I go to church, we have this little moment where we pray for everybody in the church who is going through something really bad, like some sort of health illness or some sort of trial. And usually these people are the most faithful, God-fearing people in the church. Sometimes I question, like, why are all these bad things happening to these people if they're so good and fair and God-fearing? Why does God allow these things to happen? Or why is God causing these things? And before I get into anything, I just want to let you know that God doesn't cause any bad things to happen. God is good. God does not cause bad things to happen, but he might allow them to happen. So that's the key difference between God allowing something to happen and God causing something to happen. If you have your Bible open, I want you to open it to the book of Job. We're going to be talking about who Job was and all the things that happened to this poor man throughout the book of Job. So if you have access to your Bible, let's open it. So who is Job? Well, the Bible describes Job as a blameless man, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. So, Job was a very wealthy man. He had a large family. He was blameless and God-fearing, a man of complete integrity. How often do you hear a wealthy man being a man of complete integrity and God-fearing and everything like that? Those two identifiers 
don't usually correlate together. They don't come together. Usually the richest people in the world are ones that are following Satan and the poorest people are the ones who are more likely to be rich in faith. We don't often hear about a wealthy man being faithful to God. But this paints a good picture for who Job was in the Bible. So even though Job was a faithful man, even though he was God-fearing, he went through quite a lot of grief and quite a lot of trials in his journey here. Even though Job was this faithful person and blameless, he lost everything. If we look further into Job 1, we start seeing that four messengers start making their appearance. The first one, it says, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Then, while that messenger was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And we start getting into this pattern. You'll see here soon. The next thing that it says is while he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And lastly, while that messenger was still speaking, another messenger comes up and says, your sons and daughters were feasting in their older brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. This poor man, in the matter of seconds, just lost everything. He lost his animals. He lost his farmhands. He lost his servants. He lost his sons and his daughters. And any normal person, after experience any of that, meanwhile, that's not really, you know, a lot of people don't lose all those things at once. A lot of people in that moment would respond with anger and grief and sadness and blaming God, like, oh God, why did you do this to me? Like, are you serious right now? But no, this is how Job responds. It says in verse 20, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Not only is Job responding with grief, but immediately he falls to the ground to worship God, despite the fact that he just lost everything. It says in verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. If that was us, let's put ourselves in that situation for a second. How would we respond? I was in a part of that last year. When I lost my grandfather, suddenly, a good man, when I heard, I responded in anger. I blamed God. I didn't worship God. I didn't fall into grief and worship God immediately after. I stayed in a season of anger towards God for months. So how many of us can say that we would respond the same way Job did? I'd like to bet not many. Now reading this, we might be wondering like, wow, why would God punish him if Job was such a faithful, God-fearing, blameless man? Like if he's such a great guy, why did God do this to him? Well, I'm going to tell you a little secret. If you haven't read the book of Job and aren't familiar with this book, even God knew that Job was a great guy. It says in Job 1 verse 8, the Lord asked Satan, 
Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. So if Job was so good, if even God knew that Job was so good, what on earth happened? Like, what did Job do to basically bring all of this upon himself if he is so good? If you look in Job 1, it says Job's first test. And basically, all the members of the heavenly court were getting together to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan just walks in and is like, hey, and the Lord is like, where have you come from? Because I highly doubt that Satan usually attends heavenly court meetings on the regular. Satan says to the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then Job 1 verse 8, where the Lord asks Satan, have you seen how great Job is? He is such a wonderful guy. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. But then Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is, but reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to his face. So then God says, all right, you can test him. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So then Satan left the Lord's presence. The four messengers, Satan did that. Satan took everything away because God had given him the authority. Now, this is what I want to point out here. Satan has to ask permission from God to test Job because Satan's authority is under God's control. So anytime we're going through these tests in our life, God is allowing Satan to test us. Satan can't do more to us than God has allowed that God thinks we can handle. So why did God allow this? Why did God allow Job to be tested? Or even why does God allow us to be tested or people we love to be tested? God allowed Job to be tested to prove that his faith is real. God allows us to be tested to prove that our faith is real, but not to him. God is all-knowing. He knows where we stand in our faith journey. We, he knows our hearts, but he is proving it to us. He's proving to us that our faith is real, that we are truly his children, and that no trial can overcome the faith we have in him. I want us to think about this for a second, because why do you think Satan tempted God? Why do you think Satan went to God and was like, you know what? I think Job would not worship you anymore if you took everything you had given him away. I think he would curse you to his face. Job was a blameless man of complete integrity, God-fearing, and he stayed away away from evil. God knew this. Why do you think Satan felt the urge to go to this heavenly meeting and be like, hey God, like your guy Job is not as great as you think he is? Satan would not feel the need to test Job or to test us or to test people we love if we were not living faithfully to God, if we were not so close to God. Satan doesn't want us to be with God. The enemy doesn't want us to be with God in heaven. He wants us to be with him. He was cast out, so he wants us to be cast out with him. A drowning man will always take people down with him. That's Satan. The most richest people on this earth, the most famous people on this earth do not follow the Lord. Satan has given them everything and they prosper because Satan doesn't feel the need to go to God and be like, hey, take this stuff away from them. They aren't following God. Satan has given them everything they ever want. They've made a deal with the devil, so they don't feel the need to have God. They don't feel the need to worship God, and so Satan doesn't feel threatened. Satan doesn't take anything away because they're following him. They've made a deal with him. So if we weren't faithful and we weren't good 
or trying to be good and trying to follow God, Satan wouldn't even feel the need to try to tear us from God. In Psalm 34, 19, it says, A man who does what is right and good may have many troubles, but the Lord takes him out of them all. Out of all these trials that Job went through, at the end of Job, God gave Job more. God gave him everything. But not only did Satan take away his livestock, his servants, his children, if you go to chapter 2, Job's second test is where Satan takes away his health. Satan goes back to God in chapter 2 and the Lord asks Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil, and he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to his face, or to your face. The Lord says, all right, do with him as you please, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. After losing everything and now losing his health, Job could have been like, all right, I give up, I walk away. Even Job's wife was like, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God? and never anything bad. So in all this, Job still said nothing wrong. Job maintained his integrity. Now, Job's three friends, I'm not even going to try to pronounce their names because I will surely butcher them, but his three friends come and they heard of the tragedy he had suffered and they got together and they wanted to share in his grief and just offer comfort to Job. His friends do a crap job, for lack of a better word, because they believe in the retribution theology. And what that means is that basically, you do something wrong, God is going to punish you for it. You sin, so you're being punished. If you repent, God will restore your blessings. The friends believe this, and Job also believes this, which leads to Job questioning God's justness and fairness. And eventually, he wants a trial with God. His friends are telling Job constantly for about 20 chapters of the book of Job that he did something wrong. He sinned against God, so he needs to repent. And Job comes back at them, and it's basically like an argument between Job's friends accusing him of doing something wrong and Job saying, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm innocent. I have no idea why this is happening. Is God actually just and fair in this? Like, he is making me suffer for no reason. Job's friends assume that Job's moral failures are the reason for his present trouble and that in light of his current suffering, he could not possibly be right before God. But Job was right before God. We know this. We know that God said that Job is all these great things and that it was actually Satan testing him. As this book goes on and on and we see the dialogue between his friends and Job and everything like that, the trial between Job and God finally comes. And we see the Lord now challenging Job in chapter 38. And basically, what God says to Job is like, in a sarcastic tone, like, who are you to question me? Were you there when the earth was created? When I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much, who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And he goes on and on and on and basically is like, you have no understanding as to the way of me. You have no understanding as to the ways of God. We have zero idea about how he runs the universe. God makes it clear that he has the absolute right to act as he sees fit and basically says, 
Who are we to question God? Who is Job to question God? We don't have the human mental capacity to even begin to understand the ways of God. Job was just assuming that God was unaware of the things that were happening to him, or that God was deliberately persecuting him, or that Job had sinned and was not willing to tell Job what he had done. But that's not the case. God was allowing Satan to test Job so then he could prove that his faith was real to Job and to Satan because Satan needed that confirmation or wanted to just try to tear Job away from God, which didn't work. Basically, all that Job did that was wrong in this instance is to question God and question his character. In Job 42, Job finally responds to the Lord and he says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. At the end of Job, God asked Job to pray for his friends who had spoken wrongly about God. And so Job does. And after Job obeys God and prays for his friends, then God restored his blessings even twice as much. He had even more than he had before. I, I love the book of Job so much because in the midst of God's dialogue to Job, in his response, he is showing this little sarcastic side to him. It says in chapter 40, verse 1 to 5, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I've said too much already. I have nothing more to say. So we could probably feel for Job a lot here. He went through a lot. He was not understanding why God was doing this to him. He was like, why are all these bad things happening to me? I have done nothing wrong. I am innocent. So he's like, what is going on? And I feel like when we go through trials, we can feel the same way. We're like, God, why are we going through this right now? What is happening to me? Why am I experiencing so much pain? When will this waiting be done? Or if we see something happen in someone else's life, the same questions arise, but for them. But God is not trying to prove to him that our faith is real. He is trying to prove to us that our faith is real and that no matter what trials come our way, no matter what the enemy tries to throw at us, our faith will get us through. In James 1, 2, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Our faith will be genuine. Just as Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, we are tested as well. I also want to read 1 Peter 6-7. So be truly glad. There is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. We can hold on tight to that truth, that when we experience trials, it is not because God is punishing us, but it's because it is making us stronger, is making us better. It will show to ourselves that our faith is genuine and that no matter what, 
it will get us through. And when Jesus Christ comes back to the world, it will bring us much praise and glory and honor that we had endured despite the trials, despite the hardships, despite the many times we probably wanted to give up, but we remained faithful to God. I want to give you this little analogy. When we experience the storms of life, we should be like the tree that digs its roots evermore, deeply for a greater grip in the earth. We must dig our roots more deeply into God's word and cling to his promise so we can weather whatever storms come against us. We need to be like the tree. We need to be like the tree who has roots. We need to dig our roots deeper when the storms in our life come so we can withstand the storm deeper into God's word, deeper into God's character, deeper into prayer, deeper into worship so that when these storms come, we will not be toppled over. We will not be knocked over. We will remain strong in the foundation of Christ. I just find it so comforting to know that God will never allow us to be tempted and tested more than he knows we can endure. He will never allow us to be tested more than we are able to withstand with his power. His grace is sufficient for us and his power is made stronger in weakness is made perfect in weakness, in our weakness. I just want to encourage you, friends, that no matter what trials you are going through, no matter what Satan tries to test you with, just know that God is right there with you. God is with you in the storms. He wants you to go to him when you are having the worst time of your life. He wants you to draw closer to him. Don't let Satan pull you away from God because that's what the enemy wants. He wants you to question God. He wants you to question his character. He wants you to be like, you know what, if I'm doing all these things for God and I'm still getting, you know, I'm still having all these bad things happen to me, then what's the point? And you walk away. That's what Satan wants. But the more you endure these trials, the more you know that it's for your good and for his glory and that, you know, God is trying to make you stronger and have more faith and prove to you that your faith is real, then you can tell Satan goodbye. Like, no matter what he tries to do, you are always going to be with God and nothing can pull you away from that. I want to just end our time here today with a devotional for you to meditate on. It goes into Micah 7, 7, and it says, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And the devotional says this, We all know the feeling of having to wait on something. The more we want it, the slower the clock ticks and we feel desperate to get our hands on that thing, have that prayer be answered, or arrive at our destination on time. The waiting room feels like a delay we don't have time for as we plead with God. Lord, don't you see I have been patient? Where are you? We see God during the waiting, thinking that our answer is on the other side of our waiting. However, it is often the detour itself that becomes the blessing. In the waiting, we ask, why is this happening or not happening? What is God asking of me? And is there anything holding me back from moving forward? In our searching for answers, we lean into his instruction and sit at his feet. Our time spent talking with Jesus to find the solution reminds us that he is our solution. He knows the time frame and he is fully aware of our hopes and dreams. We should not wait to withhold our praise until we get to the other side because we learn the process is the point. Life will consist of many moments in which patience will have to be exerted. It is through the discipline of celebration and the act of praise that we will find release instead of holding our breath. We must decide to lift our hands 
raise our voices and show up in the waiting room, believing that whatever's on the other side of our waiting is good. The waiting room does not mean the death of our dreams. Rather, it is often the incubator. As we search his heart, he refines ours. The game of waiting leads us to the end of ourselves as we become forced to answer the question, is he trustworthy? To keep the faith during these times of waiting, we must take the time to remember his character. When we look to the altars of our past and survey his fingerprints in our current circumstances and in the stories of the Bible, we see that failure, abandonment, and dishonesty have never been part of his track record. To truly experience peace on this side of the promise, we must ask the question, even if this does not happen as I envision it, Will I keep believing he knows best? When we can earnestly say yes, we experience the freedom of the present, knowing that whatever comes from his hands is always for our best. Fear-defying joy is found in doing the holy, hard work that is only possible in the waiting room. That is from Radiate by Clear cherry reeves it is an awesome devotional friends i hope that you just leave here feeling so so encouraged remember that no matter what trials you are going through no matter the waiting room you are sitting in god is working and his promise is worth it let's pray friends dear lord we come before you today to just thank you for everything that happens in our life we thank you for the blessings. We thank you for the trials. We thank you for you being there with us despite the hardships. We thank you for giving us the strength to endure these trials. We thank you for being there to dig our roots into so that when Satan tries to tempt us away from you, God, we remain strong. I pray for whoever is listening to this podcast that they would be made stronger in you, that they know that your power is made perfect in weakness, that their weakness is not a sign of defeat, but an opportunity for your power to shine through them. Lord, I pray as we go throughout the next week that they would just cling to you, God, that we would just cling to you more. We would embrace these trials and see it as an opportunity for great joy. We love you, God. We praise you. Let us worship you this week with hearts that are so full despite what's going on around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us today on another episode of the Lay It Down podcast. I pray that no matter what you're going through this week, that you will lay it down at his feet. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Lay It Down podcast. God loves you all. I love you all. And I will see you next time. If you haven't had enough of the Lay It Down podcast, you can check out our social media at Her Faithful Life on Instagram, TikTok for more daily godly encouragement. If you like the podcast, please give our podcast a five-star review as this really, really helps us out. God bless you all and I'll see you next time.